Hello, and welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. And Ryan, I was thinking last night, uh, I, as I, I said to my wife, as I turned on the 30th and final episode of Rectify, I can't remember the lo- last time I've been this committed to something, <laughs> except for maybe my marriage and my kids. I mean, 30 straight weeks, bro. That's we haven't even doubled hey, up and like re- we I mean I, I recorded early. If it weren't for COVID, we would have had to do some juggling because we each would have traveled at some point, but since we're stuck at home, man, we've been able to do a, a, a an episode a week and it's really been quite a journey and it's just a different way to experience a television show than I tend to experience them these days and that's the like slow drip 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 of every week as opposed to you know binging two or three episodes per night. You're exactly right. I think you know we you've talked about how this has kind of been an unprecedented thing for us and on one level that is true. We have engaged multiple series as people know if they followed the podcast, but we've never engaged a series like this um a quote unquote older series that that had a you know four season run a lot of the series that we've looked at and this is kind of a state of television today it seems like a lot of the seasons that we've looked at or series that we've looked at excuse me you know they may be only run they're a limited series or they run two seasons but you know this is certainly the longest running show that we've covered you know I don't know that you and from, I would from ever top to dip bottom, into something yeah. like this. I think exactly. we did. Yeah, I don't know that we would dip into the Sopranos or No, the and Wire. I think we did two of the four seasons of The Path, right? Or maybe even three of yes. the four seasons. Th- yeah, I think it was two of three. Two of the three, sorry. That's right. We yeah. consulted yeah. on the third, but, so um, we thought it was a conflict yeah. of interest to uh, cover So <laughs> the... And, you know, thinking about what is next for, I mean, we can talk about this later, but um, likely a limited series we'd probably talk about next. Well, I don't know that we would rush back into a older show straight away. Be interesting to get into something current, but this really did kind of hit a sweet spot. You're right about COVID, but also, you know, four seasons, not too long, 30 weeks. Yeah. That, which means we've been inside 30 weeks. Or, you know, not inside, but some yeah. limited form of social existence. But Tony, you know, son, like as like you, it sounded to me as you were talking to Courtney about the, your experience with this show. We watched on Sunday afternoon and I had to I admit I went into that episode with kind of a heavy heart. You know, I was yeah, I was in a certain spiritual and emotional place going into that episode that maybe I, you, I just don't think you would be in if you, to your point, had just binged it over two weeks. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd love, I I think we should talk about our reflections on the series as a whole, but let's do that after we talk about this particular episode. You know, it was it's interesting because obviously we've talked about this before, but there are some shows that end rather abruptly because they don't get picked up. You know, you and I have talked to enough writers to know that 
um, or showrunners that they they kind of they try to end seasons if they don't know if they've gotten picked up for another season. They try to end a season in a way that's somewhat satisfying in case it ends up being the series finale, but they don't always know it. And of course, there's a lot of scrutiny on series finales like, you know, The Sopranos, um, you know, the, the, the infamous ending of St. Elsewhere and... Uh, you know, pretty much every show. And so you go in nowadays, I think you go into watching a, a series finale, especially like in this case where they knew this was the end of the series after four seasons and, and seeing how are they going to wrap it up. And I really think, I mean, first of all, I want to say that I, I'd love to hear if you agree with this. I thought that from the very beginning, this episode had a very different feel than a run-of-the-mill episode of Rectify. Like, first of all, the piano music, the somber piano music that played throughout throughout almost the whole episode really gave the sense of, you know, this thing is winding to a conclusion. Um, and, you know, it opened with this scene that was confusing at first with um, Janet and Amantha in their backyard and Janet kind of lost in thought and then it 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 kind of shows her you kind of zoom back or pull back through the window panes she's actually in her house looking out the window and so it it turns out to be that she was thinking about the day daniel was released from prison but the day it's the day of the closing of the tire store so here we go back to you know what had happened in the very first season of rectify where there's an entire episode that's just one day but i i was just going to say i thought the mu- the music and the and the uh direction really gave it a feel of closure i agree it it felt like it felt like a song to me in a way mm-hmm. and each you know each scene is kind of a different different verse you know, and in that first scene, we we see Janet tell Amantha that she's her hero, and mm-hmm. we've never had that kind of connection between the two that we see all along. That Janet a- admires Amantha, and you know that's a loaded term because she's she's talking about Amantha's fight for her brother. Yeah, and I thought that was quite. Beautiful. I mean, I had a lump in the throat throughout. I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a softy when it comes to the show, but <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right that it it had that tone to it. It was kind of a it was very beautiful. The whole the whole episode yeah. was quite beautiful. You and know, I love for me, I yeah. knew for me, I knew that that scene at the beginning, I knew exactly where they were. And it, it, so I you know, I kind of knew from the start that Janet was reflecting back on that day and because it was tied to this other, like you just talked about selling the tire store. But what really kind of threw me for a loop was when, you know, Ted and Janet and Jared were talking about, this is, I kind of feel like this is your thing. And the whole thing that you're thinking is Janet is about to leave the house to go close the deal on the tire store, but she's really going to Hannah's house to, uh, Judy, Hannah's mother, has yeah. requested uh, her presence, so to speak. 
and asked her to come over. And Jared goes in support of Janet. Yep. And obviously Jared's had some interaction with Bobby Dean. So we see that. And that's kind of what threw me for a loop. And I thought was another quite touching scene where you have two mothers who have been had their life. They've had their life uh, put on hold, so to speak, because of two tragedies. And you finally have uh, Judy, Bobby Dean, the sheriff, a whole host of other people who are who are yeah. finally admitting in this finale that Daniel probably didn't do it. Right. And to see. Right. That exchange between Judy and Janet, I really, I thought that was a, a great bow on on Hannah's family in, in this series. I, I've got some thoughts on that, on the family thing uh, and the family dynamic, but I, I found some interesting things. First of all, you almost expect there to be a turnabout with Chloe where she comes running back to Daniel in the embrace, and instead... You know, the whole series ends with him in a field uh, with her in his imagination. We we assume it's his imagination and not a flash forward. And it's the same field, I believe, where he and Amantha spent the night and, you know, watched the sunrise the, the morning after his release. So it has some symbolic meaning there, which I think there's a lot of, you know, different symbolism and kind of throwback stuff in this episode, but Chloe doesn't even answer the phone. I I, I would just want to say this. I, I think the phone uh, plays a big part in this episode. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this. And I'm just going to throw a few out at you. Chloe won't answer the phone when Daniel calls early in the episode. Another artist who's going to inherit her loft gives Daniel a book. It's the book Middle March by George Eliot. And it's a big book. And the guy says, Chloe says you should call her after you've read the book. So basically, like, I'm going to take some space from you. You're going to take, like, read this thousand page book and then call me. In other words, don't call me tomorrow. Call me in two months. Daniel's a fast reader. It'll be, it'll be quicker than two months. <laughs> <laughs> there's he another, there's, a, there's, yeah, I mean, he doesn't have a whole lot going on. Okay. There's another scene where he's with his buddies from the halfway house and they're out for dinner, celebrating Mr. Pickle getting a job and the phone rings and it's Janet. Daniel, pulls the phone out of his pocket says it's my mama and the other guys you know say well you're going to answer it and he says i'll call her back and silences the ringer and puts it back in his pocket and then there's yet another moment um where and, and this is what i thought was such an acting and directing challenge and i did wonder about it cuz surely they could have conceived the plot in such a way that Daniel could have come home to Polly in, in this final episode, he could have either snuck home or the legal system could have allowed him to come home for a brief visit. But instead, a lot of the drama takes place on the phone. So he finally does uh, answer the phone when Janet calls and Janet tells about closing the store. And then Janet hands the phone to Teddy, who's asked to speak 
to Daniel. And then he <laughs> Daniel hands the phone to Tawny so that Daniel and Tawny can speak, even though what, yeah. you know Daniel is by by some accounts probably the reason that they divorced. So my point is that the the phone, the distance between these characters physically and the phone connection between them is um it, it's really oh and and uh, sorry one more thing daniel calls amantha and they have a chat on the phone and you know amantha is surprised it's not the kind of thing daniel does call his sister just to catch up and touch base so i wonder what you think of ray mckinnon's I, decision to have so much take place by phone in this closing episode i like it i think this is a really smart take on this episode and the way in which the the willingness or, or or lack thereof to answer the phone symbolizes something about the connection between these characters or says something about the, the state of these characters moving forward. So Chloe doesn't answer the phone. She's taking some time for herself. She's giving Daniel space. There's the implication at the end that there, there may be a future for them. In more than one place, because if this yeah. whole case is vacated, then of course Daniel can go back to Polly and be in right. that field with Chloe and her son. But they're giving each other space. Daniel doesn't answer his Janet's phone call because he's comfortable with the setting in which he's in. Right? He's he's kind of honoring the presence of these housemates, and he is confident enough, self assured enough. I can call her back. Right. Yeah. Then I loved the fact that he called back when he did, because you have this beautiful scene of everybody at dinner. They've closed down the tire store. They're having barbecue together. It's a funny scene. You, but you mm-hmm. see Daniel absent from that scene until the phone rings. And so it's kind of this present absence, absent presence that really ties beautifully into the whole theme of the show, which was, the fact mm-hmm. that his absence, his time away from that family and that community, you know, it, it the, the impact that it had on that community has basically been the whole show. And so to to circle back to that concept, but in such a beautiful, healthy way, where Daniel is back at home or at his home in Nashville and he can call and check in and everybody's there to to kind of touch base with him to to kind of say their goodbyes or, you know, until we see you again kind of thing. I thought it was, I think that's a really great way to look at the show. And, uh, and on that same note, uh, not just the fact that they called that he called her, but who does Daniel call Amantha, his warrior, right? His chief source of support for his whole life, basically. So it does seem fitting that he would call her and she would be the one to answer or that she is the one that he calls. So I think it's a, gr- a really cool way to look at it. Um, but let's be honest, about, and, we, and, and, and acting, an acting and directing challenge when you're, you're in these very intense oh, emotional conversations and the actors aren't in the same room playing off one another and you have to direct it in such a way that it, you can see why at first blush somebody would look at Rectify and be like, what a yawner. <laughs> like, you know... Well, fifteen percent of the you combine, series finale is just people talking on the phone. <laughs> that's that's well, not until like, you try pitching that to a network executive. <laughs> we go back to we go back to every comment 
that I mean, we go back to the comments from every actor, from every writer. It's it's on the page. It's the dialogue, yeah. right? It's the yeah. staging, and then to your point, it's the direction. But it's what they say to one another, what they don't say to one another, yeah. that that carries those scenes and 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 make it so effective. And I and I, I do think that that mode of communication, so to speak, is is a way to to pick apart this episode. Uh, and kind of insightful way to pick apart this episode. Well, there's a couple more things I want to uh, circle back to, but this may be, ju- this is jumping ahead a little bit to the closing of the entire episode and season really, I mean, in, in series, but I, I wonder your thoughts on this too. I mean, th- there's this thing that where they're all watching Sandra, the DA giving this press conference. Okay. And you see all these different characters, some of whom we have not seen in a long time, you know, like Senator Folks. Uh, they're all watching this. But here's what's interesting to me. I mean, I, I, we can go back and talk about that for sure because I think it's interesting. But most interesting to me is then we go to the tire store and they're all standing there. They're, the whole family, really, with, with the exception of Daniel. So with Tawny's back, the whole Holden clan, they're watching this, standing in the tire store, watching it on a TV. And th- this is what I found so fascinating. Melvin and Billy are standing there too, like almost like you think these two guys are now going to be part of this family going forward. Melvin, I love you it. know, one of the most caring, beautiful minor characters in this in the in the four seasons of this show really truly like a, a a deeply kind empathetic lovely human being and billy who from everything we can tell is perfect for amantha you know self-assured funny snarky caring uh not too full of himself not a redneck um and there they are i, I just think like Again, an odd, like an odd and yet wonderful uh, directorial decision. I'm going to include these two very marginal characters in this like final triumphant family portrait. It's almost like, and we're doing this right now with my family. My mom's putting together the Christmas card picture, which she does with all of her kids and all of her grandkids and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's got to send in pictures because we can't get a big group picture because of COVID. But the question is always like, do boyfriends and girlfriends get included in the Christmas card picture? Well, no, you've got to, once you get married, you get included in the Christmas card picture. And that goes back like to my grandparents, you know, and, and here we are with this portrait of the Holden family with these two people that they've, in some ways, very quickly embraced. And I, I don't found know. that just, a, I don't, again, I just found it a little, an, an odd enough directorial choice by Ray McKinnon that, that it was like, it must mean something. And what I take it to mean is, I didn't. This, okay. <laughs> I thought it was dead on. Tony, I didn't find the inclusion of Billy and Melvin odd at all. And in fact, it felt distinctly Southern to me. In a way that I think mm. people who didn't grow up in that world uh, may not get that 
there's a way in which small town life like that and and living in a small community at ways in which people can be grafted onto families. I've seen it uh, a million times growing up, especially single sure. people and the way in which families can so easily co-opt people and especially somebody like Melvin, who's been there for them in some very meaningful ways, as, as you've talked about through his kindness and his empathy. And yeah, so I, I felt it was uh, this really, it felt like to me Southern. And again, I don't want to, I, I, I don't know because I didn't grow up. I can't speak to other places that I didn't grow up, but that did feel like a very real thing to me. And Billy and Amantha, you know, this is a huge thing for her family. They seem to have a, a kind of a budding relationship. Of course, he's going to be there to help pack mm-hmm. up the store. Uh, the Melvin, I get if you're if you're kind of looking at this, you could see where, why Melvin, but it just felt so right to me as somebody who also who grew up in a small town for him to be there uh mm-hmm. given what he had been to that family um in small but but rather profound ways and i i loved it and it it just felt like i love janet's you know kind of look you're here you're going to you're pitching you just happen to be caught here in the last minute and it wasn't just that to your yeah. point it, it was it was intentional it wasn't just that he it, it was the last customer that called it was that melvin was the last customer and that's right. You could also see Melvin going there, knowing that the store is closing down and wanting to support that family to that's say, right. all right, I'm going to go buy something. So I just I thought it was such a sweet thing. I think you're right. And I think as a, speaking as a Yankee, probably we are more closed off to that kind of thing. And, you know, I Melvin, I think, is going to be at their Thanksgiving table the, the next Thanksgiving. And be invited over for Christmas and become, you know, the uncle to Jared's children and Janet and Ted's so. grandchildren. And he'll be, you know, I, I really, I think you're, I think you're right about that. But I just thought it was, again, the easy choice would have just been to have the Holdens all standing there in the tire store in that kind of, of course, um, you know, American Gothic moment. But, Instead, you've got these two other characters that just, again, like so many things with Rectify, it's just like a little bit tilted, a little bit, a little bit different than what you expect, which, of course, is the genius of Ray McKinnon. Well, I think it symbolizes two things, potentially. One, Amantha's future, that, that you know, Billy's going to be there, that somehow she's going to be okay, and, and maybe more than okay. Yeah. And then I think to your point, it symbolizes something about the family's relationship to the wider community, that there there's more of a sense of connectedness and inclusion than there has been moving forward now that certain things are are taking place. Tony, I want to talk about one idea in this episode that I think gets us into a discussion of the series as a whole. I don't feel compelled to talk about the case anymore. After this finale, really, because in some it. ways, well, well, let's talk about that then. We're producing here on the fly, people. I want to. Well, then we're going to talk about that before I want to talk about my thing. But to me, it felt like in this in this final episode, yeah, there's this idea that Daniel probably didn't do it. But at the end of the yeah. day, I was like, I don't really care who did it because I'm so focused on this family and so focused on Daniel that did Chris do it? Did Trey do it? I I don't I almost don't care. And 
I wouldn't have said that any other time than now. Cause you know me, I was like, Oh, this is exciting. We're going to find out what happens and who did it and what happened the night of Hannah Dean's murder. And, I, and now it's like, I don't know that that is the point or if it ever was, I mean, you argued that all along that, that I mean, was never okay. really the point of the series, but so what do you, what did you think about that element of this episode? I mean, obviously it doesn't matter who did it in so far as if Hannah's mom doesn't think Daniel did it, that's really all that matters. It's like, what does she believe? What was Bob? What does Bobby Dean believe? Can these families coexist in a small town? And will other families around the small town, you know, slowly come around to the fact that Daniel didn't do it? I agree. I mean, it doesn't, it's not an open and shut case. One of the writers, Scott or Michael, long ago told us that, you know, Ray, Ray told them all that, what was the line that Ray had used with the writers about when they asked, did Daniel do it? And it was something like probably, or Daniel doesn't know he did it, but it's, yeah, yeah, it seems like he probably did. A couple weeks ago, Luke Kirby said, you know, that that when he was on this podcast with us, that he it, it, they didn't want it to become a legal drama. And so it was always, you know, it would use John Stern or use Sheriff Carl enough to move the plot forward in time. But that was never really the point was the legal drama. The show got closest to running like a procedural cop show um in this episode because a lot happened in that day you know what i'm saying it, it's like it went everywhere from you know that obviously uh sandra covered a lot of ground in, in her press conference and then we heard it like voiced over while it's showing all these different characters watching her say it and seeing how their lives are going to change we see christopher nelms you know drinking a scotch with way too much ice in it, by the way. And you can almost imagine him going out into his garage and shooting himself in the head because he knows. Hey, real quick. Do, are you just saying that uh, you've created a new role, um, alcohol consultant? <laughs> I mean, if any okay. show wants to hire me as an alcohol consultant, I'm available and I'll do it for trade. I don't even have to get okay. paid. <laughs> um, yeah, I know what you're saying, though, about... Yeah, and, I get what you're saying. And then Trey is like... Also, I think, you know, we we care about Trey, and we know that Trey is... a He's a good old boy who um, is probably relatively innocent other than, I don't know, he probably, um, you know, shoots deer out of the window of his truck without a license. Stuff like that. Trey's... But, he, but he's not a murderer. And now this is going to get pinned on him because no one believes that George committed suicide and it's going to be down to Trey or, or Chris Nelms uh, as the murder suspect. We already know Trey's and lost Chris his, his wife. Has left, his, his wife has left him. His house is for sale. And even Sheriff Carl, who used to have a pretty chummy relationship with him, has turned cold to him. And he stands in his driveway screaming, you know, you, you son of bitches, you, you know, you can go to hell And his. So it, the turn of events now, look, he, he did not do right by Daniel back in the day. He fudged the truth 
um, and Chris Nelms was able to get away with it because Trey never went to the cops and said, you know, she deserved it. She, she had what was coming to her. Um, so I did like that part of it. It, it moved the plot forward. Um, and it, you know, you can see kind of the trajectory of where it's going without another season in which we sit through the trial of Christopher Nelms. So I, I mean, I personally liked it. I thought it was effective. And I think as just as a viewer, it's just such a weird to have a show that goes for four seasons with so much uncertainty about a, about a, about a crime. And then to have it, have there be some kind of, um, not, I mean, it, it wasn't resolved, but you could almost kind of see the resolution as a possibility. And so there was just, it left it with some hope for this family and for Daniel. So there, there, that's what I'd say about the, the legal aspect of it. Great. And that's, you know, I, I kind of, that was some of my takeaway too. I think just comparing it to these other themes and these other aspects of the series and the, and the finale, it didn't carry as much weight for me as some of, some of those other things. And one of these, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the themes of, in this episode that I thought were integral were these ideas of self-belief and pride and disappointment and hope and expectations. I thought those were that the moments that Daniel had with his housemates, especially mm-hmm. with Pickle, who talked about what it means to be disappointed and what it means to have hope and expectations, and especially for people like them who have had very limited views, uh, worldviews have had been very limited possibilities. You know, I thought it was great when he said, you know, when was the last time you were disappointed? And uh, there was a carryover. And I'm, I want to actually want to play this scene, play the audio from this scene where Daniel talks to John about how he's going to navigate or how he's learning to navigate day to day life. I think in a, in a deeper way than we've seen before, which I think gets at to something that we've talked about all along. And so we'll play that here. I want to say something about it when we come back and then hear what you think about it, Tony. Okay. Way more people have tried to help me, John, than have harmed me. The harm just seems to leave the deeper mark. Anyway, uh, I've always felt such guilt that Others were wasting their lives on me, that I was a waste, that I was unworthy. But last night, I, I didn't feel that guilt or that I was a waste. I didn't necessarily feel a, a worthiness, but I did feel a kind of responsibility, I guess. At least a, a desire to try and not let you all down. And then I felt the smallest flicker of not wanting to let myself down, you know? Because somewhere in all this, I've managed at times to fight for myself for some reason, to fight for my life for some reason. And I survived for some reason and here I am still 
some reason. And me not knowing that reason doesn't diminish it or invalidate it or disprove its existence. And that's what I'm going with today, Mr. Stern. No promises beyond that. Words to live by, Mr. Holden, for today. So that scene for me represents an important moment or a, a next chapter in Daniel's healing. And I feel like we take a giant leap with Daniel in this finale, but one that is not unjustified or unearned. Because Daniel's been doing the work of going to therapy. We've seen that for the last two episodes. He's warmed up to his housemates who are giving him some great advice and are a great source of community for him. But we've talked about how Daniel's been frustrating. Maybe that season three was super frustrating for you, I think, Tony, and Daniel's kind of inability to move and kind of feeling stuck. Yeah. And I think something about this idea of hope, this idea of letting yourself think about a future taking pride in yourself, believing in yourself, um, Mm -hmm. which Daniel hasn't been able to do thus far, understandably so. But I think we're starting to see some of that break loose in him. And it's not perfect. You know, he, he says, and when he he says to John, that's how I'm going to do today, you know, and Mm -hmm. by extension, that's how I'm going to do tomorrow and the day after. And you talk to a lot of people in recovery and they say kind of the same thing as I'm, I just you you take it a day at a time, but for Daniel that's different. It's not an addiction; it's the PTSD that he's dealing with. So, I kind of loved how those two scenes kind of brought Daniel into kind of to another place in his evolution. I don't know if those resonated with you, um, but I, I was I was really struck by those two moments in this finale. You know, Ryan, I, I agree with both those scenes. I, I thought the scene with his buddies in the halfway house was the most poignant in in that regard. Because one of the things, you know, you mentioned how frustrated I was with Daniel in his character um, it, earlier in earlier seasons. So there's this point in that group meeting you you referred to where, you know, they're, they're kind of asking questions of Daniel and he, he's talking about, missing Chloe and that kind of thing. And then they ask him a follow-up question and I can't remember how he says it, but he says something like, uh, uh, never mind." And, um, it wasn't Mr. Pickle. It was the other, the other guy who, who says, Oh, are we doing that again? Or maybe it was the group leader. It doesn't really matter. Oh, are we doing that again? And they, they they catch him. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the thing that he used to do. That was, that drove me absolutely mad was he just would shut down and refuse to reveal anything about himself because I got the sense he was refusing to go deeper into himself. And he didn't even want to answer the question out loud because he didn't want to hear the answer. He didn't want to have to uh, uh, wor- worry that figure that out or, or worry about it. So, I thought that now these guys know him well enough to see his patterns and they stop him and say, Oh, are you doing that again? Like that's Daniel's up to his old tricks. And he responds by answering the question. Like he, he, they busted him and he said, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. And he, and he moves forward. It's just, 
it, it's it's of a piece with him forgiving Teddy on the phone for him taking the initiative to call Amantha. And I think you're right for him to basically with John Stern articulate kind of a mission statement, if if you will, a daily, like, here's how I'm going to get through today. There've been way more people who've been kind to me than hurtful to me. Yes. It's just the, yes. Hurt, the hurtful ones way heavier on me, but he's kind of forming, you know, a, a mission statement and it's something forward looking. If, if Daniel in, in season one came out of prison as basically a nihilist who read Nietzsche while he was in prison, where he now seems to have a spark of hope and whether that's maybe, maybe his admission of guilt will get tossed out and he'll be able to return home to Polly. Maybe he'll be able to reconnect with Chloe whom he is clearly in love with, you know, that, that there's, something for him to hope for in the future even even a 15% raise or 15 cent an hour raise is just this little and by the way what a weird scene was that guy coming on to daniel his manager what, 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 yeah <laughs> i don't think so i didn't know I, quite I what to he, make of that scene i just love the i love the this guy who's you know biting off more than he can chew <laughs> where he says you know because I think he fancies himself a good boss and he sees Daniel doing good work and you, I guess you would think, and Daniel's a smart guy. And I think he wants to have a collegial relationship with an employee, but Daniel's the wrong person to ask that type of question because Daniel's going to take it absolutely literally. I thought that was a, a neat, uh, you know, comedic moment and, and, uh, and otherwise, you know, fairly, fairly serious episode um, where this guy just has no idea the can of worms he's opening up with asking something like that to Daniel. Right. Or if he's kind of asking Daniel on a date. I mean, that's well, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But Um, I do. I like that you mentioned uh, that comment that Daniel made that recognizing I've had far more people who have tried to or have helped me than. Yeah. than have hurt me. And I just think that's such a you know, I find myself thinking about that sometimes about, you know, life gets stressful and you think about you practicing gratitude, right. Of, of being aware of the people in your life who, who are kind of cheering you on and supporting you. It's, it's, um, a very healthy thing for somebody like Daniel to be doing. Yeah. Well, and that you don't get the sense that he's done so far, really. I mean, you get, right. he's been like you, you said, kind of stuck. He's been kind of, uh, and, and again, probably physically so where he just can't without therapy, he can't get to that place. And so maybe that therapy has begun to unlock the ability to do that for him. Well, Ryan, what's your, what takeaways do you have from this show? Having, you know, walked it, walked with it from beginning to end how how do you grade it? I mean, I know we both loved it. We wouldn't have done it if we didn't know we were going to love it. But, you know, what what did you love about it and what did you what parts of it do, do you struggle with? I want to say one thing that has stuck with me and in the first episode of the first season, we we talked about what type of show this was going to be, the things that you and I wanted to talk about. And we have not talked a lot about 
what I wanted to talk about in those early days, which was kind of the uh, inhumanity of our criminal justice system and, uh, you know, kind of corporal punishment and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I still think that that is a major takeaway for me, uh, the inhumanity uh, the, and the injustice of our of our prison system and the and the harm that it affects on families and communities and individuals. And John says that uh, when John tells Amantha and Janet that, you know, they pinned it on Daniel and drove the investigation that way. And he said, you know, that's the rule more than the exception. Um, I think that's just something that's so true of our, of our, of our real world. So that's a, still a takeaway for me. And I would recommend this show to people who are, uh, care about conversations like that. I think, um, it, it adds to that conversation because of it not being about that, if that makes sense. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing would be the setting of the show and the, the types of characters that make up this show. It's, I think we need more stories set in places like Polly and in small towns across the country with, you know, middle-class families who are living life. Obviously they were dealing with an extraordinary circumstance here, but I'm, I'm mindful of shows that get greenlit and maybe get a first season and they get canceled. I mean, Fox just pulled a bunch of shows halfway through, like they made the entire season and then they pulled them halfway through and they're just going to air reruns of other shows because of the viewership, the ratings were so bad. So I'm, I'm just conscious of, of rectify being the type of story that I think we need. Um, could it be a bit more racially diverse? Sure. But I think it's the type of story that affects people of all, of all races and ethnicities in, in yeah. our country. Yeah. And so, but the type of story that it is, the heart that it had, the integrity that it had, the belief in its characters that it had. I mean, I think about somebody like Tawny or you think about somebody like Bobby Dean, who was able to overcome that anger, right. To, to change yeah. himself yeah, and not to be stuck in there. It's just some, you know, you see maybe a, maybe a future for Bobby Dean too, for example. So I think those, that for me was, and, and then again, I, I just would say, you know, people who are more involved in this work than I am, just the writing. I mean, just what, what serialized storytelling can be. And, you know, we're watching, Amy and I are watching a good show now called uh, The Queen's Gambit, where I think it's the same thing. It's just really sharp clever writing and you can see this i would love to go back and just read these scripts like and and see what yeah. that would be like so yeah um i think those are the three things for me the the theme of of kind of wrongful detainment and 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 the harm that our prison system does to communities and individuals as as kind of one thing the second thing being the setting and the type of story it is and the third thing kind of just the the integrity that it and the respect that it had for these characters who are often, as we said from the start, caricatured or, you know, scandalized or whatever in a lot of shows. So, and I don't know that there was much that was a challenge for me. I don't think there was much that I didn't like. I don't know that there was a wrong foot 
in in 30 episodes, which is a hard thing to do. I think maybe there were one or two episodes where I was, I felt like, oh, that's good, but you know, the level was so high in so many of the other episodes that it wasn't really a a fact that that episode was bad. It was just by comparison, it just felt like a little bit of a dip, but I thought it maintained yeah. a a high level of quality throughout. What about you? Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, um people ask, I'm sure you've been asked the same thing. People see a post on social media or whatever and say, "Oh, that rectify, I see your podcast about rectify, is that show any good?" And what I've felt like I had to say to people is it's really good, but don't don't quit on it. Like early on, stick with it. It it is like it it is kind of like suggesting that somebody reads uh, an eight hundred word novel. You know, like you told me to read the Overstory, right? And that's not an easy novel to read. It's very long, and it's got multiple storylines. It, it's not. Um, it, it's a, it's it's an intellectual challenge, and you have to be ready for it when you dive into it. It's not a page turner per se. And this isn't even the kind of show I think that you would finish watching an episode and Netflix starts auto-loading the next episode and you're like, yeah, yeah, I got to watch another one. I can't stop. You know, like Stranger Things or or so. That's just... uh, Shows today uh, are so often built to to drive you in... Like serials, you know, to drive you toward the next episode to get you to watch it as fast as you can. And, And they're shot kind of at that pace. I mean, we joked with Luke Kirby about the difference between um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and this show in, in that, that you know, one's manic and one's depressive, <laughs> although two, these two shows he's been on. Um, th- this is, you know, the opposite pacing of a show like um, uh, Kimmy Schmidt or 30 Rock, like a Tina Fey show that's just so fast. Every line is a punchline. So I kind of feel like I have to warn people to be ready for the slow burn that is Rectify. I agree with everything you've said. I mean, I I don't think the show really missed a beat. Um, I, I think that the acting is just phenomenal. And you can tell the quality of the acting performances is obviously because these actors felt so comfortable in Ray McKinnon's hands. Like as they've told us, those that have come on our podcast here, they love the scripts and, and the, the writing drew them in, in spite of the fact that the show, you know, instead of going on AMC ended up on Sundance and it, it, you know, it, it, it didn't get the viewership that it probably deserved. And so all I would say about that is the acting made me want more of a lot of minor characters. So if there was anything I wish, I wish that we would have found out, we would have seen more of Trey. We would have found out more about Sheriff Carl's backstory. We would have seen more of Senator Folks who every time he walked on the camp on you know into a scene it's like the devil walking onto a scene it just raised the tension and we even heard a bit, little bit again from i think it was from 
uh, Scott teams the last time he was on telling us we, we brought up something about Jared and he said, oh, yeah, there was a whole nother storyline about Jared in this episode and it all got cut. Right. And it just makes you think yep. like, well, I want to know more about Jared. I want to see that. I want to see what that what, what happened with Jared. Um, so that I think that's what I'm saying is if there's anything I just wanted more, I wanted more of these very interesting yeah it's a great problem to have because yeah because even even in their kind of marginal um effects on the series they were written well and acted well making me want more and in a lot of series when these supporting characters come on you kind of roll your eyes like this guy's not a good actor and not very well written and i just you know he's just here to move the plot forward not not in this show I, I just wanted more and more and more of them. I think that's a, if that's the only critique, you're in a good place. <laughs> I'm so glad we did this. I'm so glad that we uh, took our time with it. I'm sad yeah. that there's no more. I don't know what I'll do on Sunday afternoon now, <laughs> what what I'll watch now, but um, I it's been such a thrill talking about this show with you appreciate your perspective and it's been a delight to have had the folks on that we had uh you know thank you to them again and you know we'll probably take a break it feels like maybe take a couple weeks try to find a current show or an upcoming show that we can get behind and hopefully have some similar experiences with writers and actors but would you put uh, maybe as a as a Put it, putting a bow on Rectify, is it a top five show for you personally? Uh, for me and just for my tastes, it doesn't rise to the level of The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, the the shows that are really in my like top five Hall of Fame. But I'd for sure put it in, you know, the top twenty of the shows I've I've watched beginning to end, and that's you know, there's a lot of shows, but in that list, but yeah, it's it's in there for sure. How about you? I think it's in my top ten for sure. It may be in my top five. The other shows that you mention are certainly Mount Rushmore shows, and they benefited from a couple of extra seasons. And they benefited from some, you know, larger than life ideas, events, situations, things like that. You mean, you just think about Breaking Bad and just the drama of that. But I do feel like there's a space in a top five, if you could like speak about it objectively, that makes room for this kind of small, intimate storytelling where it's yeah. about this one family, this one person, where this, where the drama, so to speak, the, the murder, the, the rape murder, and the, 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 the search for, quote unquote, the truth of what happened that night is really the backdrop of the series. So I think in one level, it's not maybe not fair to compare it to those other series because... It's just, it feels like a different animal. Like you were saying how you set it up for people, you know, 
to say stick with it, where you don't really have to say that about The Wire. I think you probably had to say that about the first three episodes of The Wire. But you didn't have to say that about Breaking Bad. I mean, that went, that came out like a shot. Yeah. And so, but yeah, so at top 10 for sure, I mean, maybe it, top it, five. Ryan, regardless, that, it's a great show. Regardless, yeah. it's a great show. No, it's a great show. And what I would, I guess, say is it's almost a category unto itself. You know, I don't know that a show like this will ever get made on TV again at this pace with this, um, in, in with this kind of intensity of where, where it's really just about conversation. It's almost like the, the, you know, it's almost like the equivalent of Ken Burns. It only Ken Burns can write, can can do like eight or 13 hour documentary movies that are primarily still photographs with voiceover on them. You know what I'm saying? Like only he can do that. And I think only Ray McKinnon probably could have pulled off a show with, with this pacing and this intensity, but without much action. And I just think TV has moved even in the five years since the show was shot, TV has moved away from this kind of storytelling. Maybe it will circle back, but you know, I, I, It'll be interesting to see if this show finds an audience in the future because the way the TV's made now is socializing us for a different kind of viewing experience than what this show delivers. So it's it's a it's a unique animal, and uh, I think you're right. I mean, in in its own category, it is number one on my top ten list. You know what I'm saying? But you're right. In some ways, it's unfair to compare it to those others because it is yeah. of a different. It, it's just cut from a different cloth it, it's like comparing a movie from the 1950s to a movie from the 2020s it they're the 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 medium is so different that it's it's hard to even compare them well thanks everybody this has been quite a journey 30 weeks 30 episodes we uh you know we're we thank netflix for continuing to stream and keep you know uh, things are coming and going from Netflix all the time. It would have really sucked if this show disappeared from Netflix halfway through. So it, it, it's yeah, it's awesome that Netflix continues to have shows that you know are very high quality like this that hopefully people yeah, can discover. Yeah. Yep. Well, everybody, right, we'll, we'll be thanks. back yeah. soon with For a sure. new show. Stay tuned. Take care. And thanks for listening to Killer Serials. Mm-hmm.